to society. What are you going to do to help that? And you know, so often people talk about the purpose of the organization and it's, does our organization have a clear purpose and do people understand it? I think that's important. But people's personal purpose is also important. And it's when the personal purpose, what I wanna do when I wake up in the morning and how I'm going to become my best self at work marries with what the organization is trying to do. That's when you get really, really magical things uh, happening. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show is part two of our interview with Michael Pakanowski. If you missed part one, please go back and learn about three decades of work, both in universities and with W.L. Gore, and just the innovation of the kind of organization that privately held grows to $3.8 billion a year in revenue and 11,000 staff and still innovates like crazy. Michael, when we ended off part one, we talked about a couple of core concepts. Make it easy for people to start something, to run an experiment, and make it easy for them to get the necessary resources to keep it going if it's working. Can you give me an example of, of logistically, in, inside Gore, if I wanted to start something, if I had an idea, what, what that process looked like for me? Like, why was that easy for me to be allowed to go start an experiment? Okay, so I could imagine a couple of different ways where the product development would happen, all right? So sometimes product development would happen would because a salesperson would be out talking to a customer. And the customer says, you know, you guys make this, but it would be really nice if we could get something that did this, right? So the salesperson says, well, I'll, I'll see whether that's possible. And because of the kind of way Gore is set up, most salespeople know somebody that's doing science work, research and development, engineer, something like that. And so they'll go talk and they'll see if there's a possibility here. And if the idea sounds promising, like there's potential value here in this, to a customer, then let's see what we can what we can do. And so the salesperson becomes part of the product development team along engineer, right? Or somebody, the role, one role at Gore was called a product specialist, somebody who was the product mother. He was gonna, he or she was gonna be the person to really take care of this product. And so this is an outgrowth of that. So I wanna talk to the product uh, specialist. Another possibility, is I'm a engineer, scientist, and I like to fool around and I do something and it just seems cool to me. And I say, hey, I wonder what this could be used for. Right? So in fact, that was the, you say, the, the biggest example of that was the development of Gore-Tex, the finding of Gore-Tex. So Bill originally, uh, when he founded W.L. Gore Associates, Gore-Tex was not around. He was just using Teflon to coat wires and that's what he was doing. And a salesperson, I understand, came to him and said, you know, we're using this Teflon to make sealant for chemical processing plants, right? So you've got, you know, piping, copper piping, tubing, whatever it is, and they've got joints and the joints had to be sealed and the joint the chemicals would really mess up. So they had to, Teflon, Teflon was great, but it was kind of expensive. And so I said, you know, if you could stretch this Teflon, we could make it last longer and less money would be less material cost and it would be really great. So Bob Gore tried to figure out how to stretch Teflon and being the engineer, he did everything. The scientist, he was also, he, he heated Teflon rods 
oh, about maybe 18, 24 inches, 36 inches long. He would heat them to different temperatures and then pull them at different rates of speed to see if he could get them to stretch. And what he found was most of the time he could pull them and get them to stretch about 10%, but that wasn't, that wasn't what was needed in this case. So the story goes that one day Bob's working by himself, stretching rods, and he had something of a temper sometimes, and he just got down to two rods and he yanked them real hard rather than stretched them slowly. And son of a gun, they stretched. They, they went like 10, 10x rather than 10%. And he was stunned. He couldn't believe it. So he went home and came in the next morning and showed his dad and some of the other scientists. He said, look, I've been working on trying to stretch this Teflon. And he pulled a couple and they all broke just the way they always did after 10%. I said, and then I got ticked off and boom. And everybody just saw this and they were just blown away. Well, now they have this thing, stretch Teflon, expanded PTFE. What are you going to do with it? And so Bob started trying to figure out all of the things that this could be used for because it was inert. It didn't, you know, it could be biocompatible. It could be this, it could be that. And he actually sketched out in the original patent for expanded PTFE, most of the uses broadly that expanded PTFE cortex could be used for. So you do have people just kind of putzing around in the lab, in the shop, in the here, in the there, trying something and saying, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if we can use this for anything. You know, it, it's funny stories like that. I feel like we get to hear a lot of innovation stories of the accidents, you know, 3M, the glue wouldn't stick or the, you know, whatever, right? But I feel like part of the story that doesn't get told enough that I like about that story is uh, persistence. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. like it. I think about some of the breakthroughs, you know, we've had a lot of failures, but we've had some pretty big successes with the companies I've started. And I think about how often it it's, yeah, it's luck, but the luck is only possible because we were still doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean, like we failed and failed and failed a bunch of times or it just wasn't going right. And, but we, like, we were just still going. And we, when we finally stumbled across the like, and whether it was accidental, whether it was whatever, but that persistence aspect of like, some thinking, some experimenting, but kind of just like too dumb to quit. Right. Well, so, <laughs> I, so, so let me just, let me add, just spring off of that, springboard off of that. One of the things that Bill used to really like to ask somebody when they said that they wanted to do something, he would say, or he would ask, well, what's your dream? Right? What's your dream? And he, he was really big on trying to figure out whether somebody really had a passion for what they were trying to do or whether this, you know, it's just a little diddly thing on the side because he was convinced that if you had the passion for it, if you believed in it yourself, then you're more likely to be persistent. And that that's what, that's what he wanted to support. He wanted people with passion. I remember one of my early experiences with Gore was working with a division that had resisted the notion of product, product specialists. And, and Bill and Bob both were champions of product specialists. They thought product, having a product specialist outside of the, you know, any kind of leadership roles who was solely focused on that product that they were working. That was really key. And so I was asked to try to introduce the notion of product specialist to this division. And I organized a meeting of one of the market specialists who is now going to be called a product specialist and the leader of the division. And I happened to match, manage, mention that to Bob Gore. And so Bob kind of said, well, I wonder where's that, when's that meeting going to take place? And I said, well, such and such time, such and such time. I said, when, where? All right. So I told him, didn't think anything of it. Well, time the meeting shows up, not only did Bob show up, Bill showed up too, right? Both of them showed up. 
And they started talking to this person who was going to become the product specialist, who was a good salesperson and asked about this, what's your dream? I remember, I mean, they asked him, you know, what's the revenues? What's the forecast? What's the, this, all the financial stuff that you would expect. And then Bill suddenly said, what's your dream for this product? And that like kind of caught the guy. He wasn't sure. And then Bill said, well, no. so one reason I asked that was, you said that this market was flat to declining. So why would you want to be in a flat to declining market? You're a, you're a good salesperson. You can make much more of a contribution selling stuff than to be trying to mother along a product in a flat to declining market. The um, funny part about that is that because I was doing research at that time, I was an academic, I was doing my uh, sabbatical year, I was writing down every question that Bill and Bob asked. And after the session was over, the fellow who was the marketing specialist wanting to be product specialist came to me and said, did you write down all those questions? I said, I did. He said, can you type them up for me and give them to me? I said, I can. He said, you know, and this is back in the days of Michael Jordan. He said, Bob and Bill have the longest intellectual hang time of anybody that I know. They can always ask you another question. They can always ask you another question. And so I typed those all up. And in fact, that circulated within the company for years as you should know the answer to all of these before going before Bob and Bill in a meeting. But I want to go back just to something because it connects with what's what you said at the very beginning about what's on my LinkedIn. To me, what was so obvious about the success of Gore after all those years, and particularly after studying other organizations like Gore is this notion that business success can be married with true human flourishing. People at Gore didn't matter what your background was. If you could do it, great. You didn't have to have the resume. You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to have a title. It was, what what is your passion? What are your talents? What are your gifts? How can you contribute to the enterprise? The enterprise has to create value. The enterprise has to be, for it to exist, has to be contributing to society. What are you going to do to help that? And, you know, so often people talk about the purpose of the organization. And does our organization have a clear purpose? And do people understand it? I think that's important. But people's personal purpose is also important. And it's when the personal purpose, what I want to do when I wake up in the morning and how I'm going to become my best self at work, marries with what the organization is trying to do. That's when you get really, really magical things uh, happening. And I think that uh, organizations need to create that environment where people see themselves coming to work, energized, looking forward to the day. Not, I can't, you know, not, it's not hump day. It's not, thank goodness it's Friday. It's as they used to say at Gore, thank goodness it's Monday. You know, I get, <laughs> I, I get to come to work. And of the organizations that I've really admire and come to admire through my research, they all have that same capacity where they are in it for the business success or if it's a nonprofit for some mission, but they understand they're going to get there genuinely through the efforts of the people that are working there. And they want to make it possible for each person to grow, to truly flourish as a human being and to contribute, to feel good about contributing. You know, I am... It's funny. I think one of my favorite things about this podcast, there's two things I love. Hearing things that I never hear anywhere else, so I can bump into new ideas, and hearing things that I repeatedly hear from people I consider really wise thinkers or, you know, really accomplished at, at their different disciplines, you know. 
And it's funny when you say that, because immediately I'm thinking about Warren Buffett and this idea where he says he tap dances to work because he likes what he does so much, you know, tap dances to work every morning. And the the TV show host and comedian, Steve Harvey, he has like a lot of great like motivational uh, clips <laughs> on YouTube. I had no idea. I've, I've, I've been binging on them a little and uh, they're quite funny. But he says, like, if you like if you wake up in the morning and you're not excited about what you're about to do, why don't you why don't you switch to something else? You know, and like it's like a Steve Jobs had a very similar saying. He says, if I get up in the morning and I'm not excited about what I'm about to do, and then it happens too many mornings in a row, I know it's time for a change. And one of my favorite authors of all time, this guy, Richard Koch, wrote the 80-20 principle. You know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars or, or more <laughs> now by, by using it and just says like, you need to figure out what your one unique ability is that doesn't feel like work and figure out how to not do anything else. And it's just like, this principle that shows up over and over and over. So it's fun to hear it from you as well. Well, so, and let me link that back to that's what the job of the sponsor was. Sponsor was to help you understand what were the unique talents and gifts that you had that you could bring to work. You know, we always feel good when we're working from a talent and a gift, right? Where do we feel bad when we're not using them or when we're being asked to do something that we're not so good at, but we're mediocre at? I mean, Honestly, one of the best things that ever happened to me in life, and I use this now in my conversations with younger people, students particularly, is that there are three kinds of jobs you can get when you're right out of college. One is a great job, very fulfilling. One is a terrible job that you just hate. And the third is a mediocre job and you kind of get by. I said, I didn't have the good fortune, my very first job, to have a good job, but I did have the good fortune in my first job to have a job that I hated because it meant that I wasn't doing medi something mediocre that I was gonna do for a really long time. Three months into it, I knew that this was not right for me. I knew that it was time to leave. I knew that it was time to get out of there. And you know, here's the sad thing from my point of view, Gallup has been doing studies of engagement of workers around the world for 30 or more years. And in the United States, and we're better than most, <laughs> most other countries, in the United States, Gallup says on average, about 30% of the American workforce is actively engaged. Top dances to work. 50% and they come in, they may do a good job, but their heart's not in it. 20%, nah, they hate it. They'll mess up just to make some excitement. So I got 70% of the workforce not fully engaged, not actively engaged at work. Jim Keene, who's I think retiring this month as CEO of Steelcase, he would give uh, public presentations. I saw him do this once where he begins with a slide that only has 70% on it, that figure, 70%, big, huge. And he says, this is the percentage of American workers who are not actively engaged today. And then he says, you know what? This number hasn't changed much in 30 years. So as an engineer, I can only assume that if we get the same results for 30 years in a row, it must be the way our organizations are designed. They are designed to disengage people. And I think that's true. And I think that one of the things that Gore did so well, and so many of the other companies that I studied, is that they have found ways, either enterprise-wide, and I'd say this is true of Gore, to engage far more than 30% of the workforce, or within specific areas of the workforce, where you get these kind of, I'm really excited to go to work. But, but I, we can't be blinkered by the fact that we've done certain things in some ways for so long and they worked for us. I mean, industrialization, the modern organization that came out of it, the hierarchy, the decentralization, all of those kinds of things. 
they, they've created a lot of uh, efficiencies and a lot of wealth, but maybe at quite some human cost, especially if they're continued into today. So, you know, certainly with Bill Gore and Bob Gore, you always had the sense that they were talking to you as a person. I mean, I know that sounds trite, but Bill used to stress the fact that W.L. Gore and Associates was an association, that the people who worked there were associates. And he hated terms like employees, headcount, human resources. I mean, these, these would be things that for him would sort of objectify people rather than these are people. Right? FTE, that's what, that's what I, I like, FTE. Not even a full-time FTE. You're only a part-time FTE. You're a 0.3 FTE. Well, if you're a 0.3 FTE, what are you going to contribute? Are you going to tap dance to work? Are you going to be excited about that? Because everything will be organized around you to keep you from having that enthusiasm that is it's fun. central it's to fun. Both. Yeah. Well, it's fun that we're having this conversation because I just finished with Ken Blanchard talking about how much he enjoyed helping Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines and the CEO of Chick-fil-A and the way they embraced servant leadership and genuinely, truly cared about their staff. Not like a tagline, not like no. a PR pitch, like it's baked into the bones and they have engagement scores that are like just almost unbelievable. Sure, sure. And, and they have profits that are almost, you know, for fast food and for airlines, they have just incredible financial results. And everybody actually likes showing up to work there, apparently. Not everybody, but basically everybody enjoys working there. You know, like I guess fast food industry has 150% turnover averagely and Chick-fil-A had like 20%, you know? Yeah. And anyways, it's, it's fascinating. I know we're out of time. But I can't let you go before talking about one of my heroes who I know you like. One of my favorite books of all time is called Humble Inquiry by Ed Schein, Edgar Schein. And I know you're a fan. So let, let's give a plug for Ed Schein. What, what is it about his stuff that you identify with so much? A couple of things. First, Ed, in his work on organizational culture and leadership, which is what has influenced me the most, is that he was intimately connected with, oh, why am I blanking on the name? of the company, digital equipment, right? Digital equipment and um, the founder of digital equipment. So Ed was not one of these people that did the quick, you know, 30 second dive into an organization. Let me rip off this story. And now let me take it, and make it, you know, publish it. I mean, he, he really knew what he was talking about when he was talking about the successes and the challenges that digital equipment faced. Second, I've had the good fortune of being able to work with Ed a couple of times, once when I was working for Gore and several times when I was working at uh, Westminster. And he practices what he preaches. I mean, talk about humble inquiry. He asks the questions. He asks the questions. He doesn't come off as I know it all right from the very beginning. He helps you see. He tries to help you see your own path into your own questions. What a compliment. Practice what he preaches. I love it. Uh, listen, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you for making the time for it. Indeed. Thank you for having um, me. I appreciate it. Let's let's do this again. Best places for people to connect with you online. Uh, MichaelPakanowski.com. Great. Say hi to our mutual friend, Jerry Benson, for me. And, okay. and thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jess. Take care. Okay. Bye, everyone.